2: Talk plain, talk unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old fashioned common sense in search of the perfect debate. The independent republic
3: of Mike Graham. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, well, well comes the question. There are now four, count them, uh, young individuals who have been in touch with either the BBC or the Sun newspaper to say that they have been, uh, shall we say, contacted uh, by the presenter X individual, the person who is still unnamed, who works in a senior capacity at the BBC as a presenter uh, in some way or shape or form. It could have been flirtatious, it could have been of a sexual nature, Uh, a couple of them met up, some didn't. Um, It's a very, very nasty can of worms altogether. And it seems that yesterday's appearance by Tim Davey uh, in front of a bunch of journalists and then being interviewed by his own organisation hasn't actually helped the BBC whatsoever. It has actually mired them in even more nastiness than they had seen uh, up until yesterday. Tim Davey admits that he has not yet spoken to the presenter uh, in question. Jeremy Vine, another BBC presenter, has come out and said that it really is time for that presenter to name himself Uh, as the perpetrator of all of the stuff that's been going on. Meanwhile, the BBC is asking a question internally this morning and for public consumption. Is it any of our business? Well, I think it is, as uh, as, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan said. Of course it is our business. This is the state broadcaster, which, by the way, has just published its list of how much they pay people, which is quite eye-watering and staggering. And for people who are trying to get by on an ordinary salary, trying to pay the water bill, trying to pay the electricity bill, trying to pay the mortgage, trying to pay the rent, you will be absolutely horrified. Of the amounts of money that some of these people have gifted themselves. We'll also be talking about Deborah Turness this morning. Uh, she's the woman who's in charge of all BBC employees, 6,000 of them. She's getting about £400,000 a year. Uh, and basically, she is the head of news at the BBC. But she's got a rather interesting heritage, which we'll be getting into uh, this morning. We're going to be talking to a great many people, including Annabelle Denham, uh, including, of course, Alex Phillips, former MEP, including Rafe haydall Manku uh, as well. And there's going to be prime as questions as well Eddie henmans coming in from the sun jamie jenkins is here from wales to give us a catch up on what's going on down there and there is definitely uh, a whiff in the air there is a whiff of sort of betrayal uh, there is a whiff of nastiness there is a whiff of the media uh, all sort of uh, hiding up on one side or the other of this particular route. All the lefties at the BBC and former lefties who have now left the BBC and gone elsewhere, like John Sopel, are all over the place. They think that the Sun have got something wrong. They're wishing that the story would go away, but the story isn't going away because with every day that passes, more people who have been contacted uh, by this rather curious presenter who seems to have um, some kind of wherewithal uh, to go onto social media websites and dating sites despite uh, the fact that perhaps. It's something he shouldn't be doing uh, for one reason or another. He can't seem to stop himself. So it's a de- desperately sordid tale. Um, it's a desperately sordid situation. The BBC is not helping uh, either. Neither are the police. The police, by the way, apparently had a meeting with the BBC yesterday but couldn't be bothered actually going to the BBC. 1.6 miles away, uh, they had a Zoom call instead. The police are saying they're not investigating the case. They're just making an assessment as to whether they should be investigating the case. Well, what on earth is going on? All it means is that we're wasting an awful lot of public money, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and I'm not having it. 0344 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. let's not forget there's a few migrant stories to talk about as well because apparently uh, they are actually managing to uh, resist the house of lords stopping the migrant bill from going through uh, last night in the house of Commons they managed to reverse about 15 different amendments that were made the last time uh, the bill was in the house of lords it's now going back to the house of lords where no doubt they'll and put the other 15 back on again uh, but we've got plenty to talk about with that uh, plus of course the bbc story let's talk right now to rafe haydell mancou historian broadcaster senior fellow at the new culture forum rafe very good morning to you. Always a pleasure Mike. I'm not quite sure what the biggest scandal is this morning whether it's the fact that uh, we still have uh, an unnamed BBC presenter on suspension without knowing how long he's going to be suspended for or what exactly he's been suspended for and exactly who he is or uh, the amount of money that people are being paid inside of the BBC in an extraordinary um, sort of what I would call um, guest list of people, which goes all the way down uh, to Mark Easton at number fifty, uh, who gets two hundred thousand quid, roughly, roughly speaking. Um, it's an extraordinary amount of money these people are being paid, and I fail to see why.
4: Yeah, you're quite right, and of course, let's remember this doesn't include those people who get paid through their own personal companies yes, as well. Right. Uh, which can often be, I suppose, quite uh, even higher amounts than that. Actually, Claudia Winkleman wasn't on that list that I, I've seen at no, least. No, nobody who is uh, well, nobody, nobody
3: came... apparently nobody who is paid through the commercial arm, which is called BBC Studios, appears on that list at all. Claudia Winkleman, Tess Daly, uh, you've got Alex Jones, Paddy McGuinness, people like um, Evan Davis um, who are paid in both different sorts of ways. Um, so it's quite an extraordinary state of affairs. Alexander Armstrong, Richard Osman, another one
4: yeah i as you know i'd be surprised if those if those fees weren't dramatically higher than the uh four hundred thousand that we've seen some BBC news presenters get I yes. uh, have quite how they can justify this in the, in today's industry you know when there are uh, there's very little justification that their talents uh, can't be replaced by we're now seeing many other people Mm. who are just as equally qualified to to do what seems to be a rather substandard job, you know, these days. You don't even have to have much of a journalism background to be a BBC news presenter. I've always contrasted, you know, our news presenters with the American news anchors, people like Walter Cronkite, chaps who were really seasoned veterans, who got into the role and had a respectable past where you could say they've been to the Vietnam front and so forth. Too often all that we have are just people who can speak very well in front of an queue. Yeah,
3: who can basically read out loud. And for that, you can be paid as much as half a million quid. It seems extraordinary, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, when we see the fees that are being wasted uh, in in all sorts of manners, including, of course, with this current debacle with regards to the the payment of £35,000 to a... uh, to this, to this person, this young person, and of course, his license fee money yeah. that's being paid at the end of the day, uh, and that's why I think we you know going back to your the other issue. That's why there is a public interest mm. in all of this.
3: Yeah, and I find it really fascinating that people who used to work for the BBC, like John Sopel, have sort of emerged as this great defender uh, of the public's right not to know anything. You know, he believes that uh, the BBC have done clearly nothing wrong, and the Sun have got it all wrong. And I mean, he's put out some tweets which have seemed rather odd for somebody who is meant to be. All the, all the while telling us that he's a neutral journalist. He clearly isn't.
4: Yeah, all I can say is, you know, had this happened to somebody on the right, that's not, you know, had it been a, a Kelvin McKenzie or whoever of yeah. this world that this was happening to, I think it'd be very difficult to imagine the, said the, uh, the phalanx of defenders that yeah. we've seen in this case oh, coming yeah. out with quite the same... Uh, um, strength of uh, feeling on this. Well,
3: Sopal's such a useless journalist that he actually suggested the son was going to be the victim of a massive libel case because they'd got it completely wrong. That was before the second um, uh, young person came out to say they'd been contacted by this uh, this presenter, and the third, and then now the fourth. So there's now four people, young people, who have been contacted by this individual uh, for nefarious purposes, you'd have to say.
4: Yeah, and, and we saw the same thing with Owen Jones saying much the same thing. And it's it's funny because these are the people who always think that people on the right are too quick to rush to judgment. Yes, uh, And yet so they're doing just the same thing. As soon as there is the slightest suggestion that there's an error with the Sun news story, mm-hmm. now it really may well be, but rather than saying, well, let's wait and see, they made their own rush to yeah. judgment as well. Like, I don't see how they can
3: Well, the story you know, is clear. The story is, clearly, right. the story is clearly right because there are now four people who have basically corroborated this type of behavior carried out by this individual. You know, money being offered, you know, pictures being exchanged, all sorts of meetings being arranged, you know, uh, this is not something that is a one-off, that is not something that one family has discovered is a bad thing. But to be serious about the BBC for a moment, questions are now being asked about the woman who heads the news division of the BBC woman called Deborah Turness now you may not know too much about her she came from NBC where she was the CEO as well uh, and she was there when there was a lot of difficulties with certain presenters particularly you might remember this case Brian Williams you might remember him um, he was an anchor one of those anchors who was brought through the ranks he had come up through I think the local affiliate uh, an NBC station in New Jersey he was in New York when I was there but he became the sort of main NBC anchor And he started for some bizarre reason telling um, Porky Pies about where he'd actually been and what he'd done, claimed that he'd been in various war zones and he wasn't there. But he was protected for a long time by this woman. And there's suggestions that that may be her kind of M.O., that she might like to protect people more than she would to be sort of transparent about what they've been up to.
4: Well, and as we all know, too far too well, it's, it's the cover up that's actually the biggest yeah. scandal of all at the end of the day. And what I find amazing here, you know, this comes, what is it, you know, a decade or so after Jimmy Savile yeah. and Rolf Harris, and yeah. all of that. And you would have and thought. And Cliff Richard, let's face it. Given the huge storm that, that, that engulfed the BBC at that point, you really would have thought they would have learned the lesson and put in place policies whereby if parents do complain, that they are actually more of an effort is made to contact them. Yeah than a, then a, a call to their mobile phone that isn't connected and an email isn't answered. And they, they leave it at that. But also, this BBC presenter, I mean, how stupid must someone be after everything that happened with Jimmy Savile and Stuart Hall and Rolf Harris not to be more careful in, his, in, in in their activities than to actually leave such clearly such a clear paper trail or Electronic paper trail, as seems to be the case. I mean, it boggles the mind right. the degree of stupidity on, on both levels.
3: And the, 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 the situation was exacerbated, it seems to me, yesterday by Tim Davies' appearance before some journalists, again on a Zoom call. He wouldn't meet them in person, which seems very odd indeed. You know, why not have a proper press conference in a proper room set aside at Broadcasting House? No, no, can't do that. Uh, then giving an interview uh, for quite a lengthy period of time to the world at one. Uh, in which he admitted that, that he hadn't known anything about this until Thursday of last week and that he still hadn't even spoken to the presenter um, concerned. So they're still not getting it right, are they?
4: No, I mean, I find it remarkable that the director general didn't think it was necessary to actually have his own conversation with, with, uh, with, with this individual, not least knowing that he was going to be asked whether he had spoken this. But in one thing in the BBC's defence, because I did watch that, Uh, interview on Watto, World at One on Radio 4, and you know the BBC are very good at actually um, examining themselves. It's hard to find, and I couldn't think of another network that actually would be as good in that interview as we saw Sarah Montague in her questioning of the Director General.
3: But it took a a few days because ever since the story broke, the BBC uh, have had reporters standing outside Broadcasting House, being interviewed by people inside Broadcasting House, asking them what they know and answering that they don't know anything.
4: Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think, you know, heads, heads have to roll somewhere on this issue. And it may be the woman that you've, that you've mentioned is the person who actually holds more blame here than uh, is being revealed at the moment.
3: Yeah, well, I think what we do know is that there's an awful lot of middle managers who are paid vast sums of money uh, who don't do an awful lot, um, who presumably didn't know anything. Because one of the things that, uh, that was said at the World at One interview yesterday was that everyone in the BBC now knows who this individual is.
4: Yes, well, you know, the mail mail say that one in six people in the population know who this person is. That was a few days ago. By now, I would suppose it's one in three people. I mean, anyone with access to Twitter can find out who this person was uh, within, you know, two or three minutes. Well, yeah, Uh, but but
3: what I'm saying is is that for the BBC to officially say in an interview that everybody in the BBC knows who the person is would suggest that there is knowledge uh, abroad, shall we say, about the proclivities of this individual.
4: Oh well, I'm not. That's not what I took out from that. I took out from that. You know that once, once something becomes, you know, common knowledge within the, in the, within that you know, I don't, th- I don't think people before May or or you know, July knew who this that this person was up to the antics they're being accused of.
3: Mm. What do you make of the chances of uh, some MP outing them today in Prime Minister's Questions or somewhere else? Well, this is the big question, isn't it? But of course, remember what was the name of that? Tom
4: Watson did something similar, didn't yeah. he? Uh, When he named people, I think it would be ill-advised at this moment because we have to remember, of course, right now uh, the, the police haven't named haven't named him because there's no evidence yet of any criminal activity having taken place. There's no proof or evidence of that. I think it would be unwise to, to do so at this moment. Uh, you know, the BBC, of course. We we, you know, we remember the Cliff Richard debacle, don't we? When the BBC yeah. uh, named Cliff Richard, so I would be cautious about naming him. I think it behooves you know the individual in question to name themselves, just a, on a point of principle, mm. as a as a gentleman to you know to take the um, to take all the spotlight of those poor individuals who are being maligned in social media. Well, yeah,
3: and also just to stop the relentlessness of these kinds of stories affecting the people who shouldn't really be in any way harmed by them, including um, his own uh, family. You know, that's the problem. But stay with us, if you will, Rafe. We've got plenty to do, uh, loads of people to talk to as well. We want loads of your calls as well, of course, 0344 499 1000. Coming back uh, with Rafe, we're going to be talking about the migrant bill from last night in the House of Commons and much else besides. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Rafe Hadel-Manku, historian, broadcaster and senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Uh, we had some movement yesterday on the migrant bill, Rafe. It looks as though uh, the House of Commons was able to sort of do away with quite, quite a few of the House of Lords amendments that were brought in uh, famously the other week uh, when uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury was sort of leading the way for the wokeists. Um, they're also talking about bringing in age tests for migrants as well, which has got to be a step in the right direction.
4: Yes. Well, I mean, this is quite remarkable that they're doing this just now when we've had, you know, um, over a thousand um, alleged child migrants have already been proven to be uh, to be over the age of age of 18. You know, Migration Watch looked into this and 66 percent of disputes about the age of child migrants Hmm. end up proving that they are actually over 18. And, you know, over 50 migrants in this country who claim to be under 18 are over 30. Yes. Yes. Why we've allowed this to go on for so long, you know, know, boggles the mind. And that's my problem here is, yes, it's wonderful that we've got this illegal migration bill being put forward by the government. Yes, it's wonderful that we're finally having age checks done. But, you know, they've been in government now for 13 years. That's the exact same time that new Labour was in power. And they've done absolutely nothing until now, of course, they realise they're facing a near-extinction-level disaster at the next election. They're suddenly getting tough on all of, these, all, all of these issues. It's too little and it's too late. But a particular plague on the House of Lords, you know, for deliberately trying to, to scuttle this bill, or kick it into the long grass. And it just shows how out of touch they are with the British public and how little they understand the consequences of this. I happened to go, um, unexpectedly, I was in Great Yarmouth uh, last weekend and everywhere I went, I I could see evidence of the impact that illegal migration is having on this country Mm. and the people that are around. And of course, the peers never, ever go to these places. They live lives of, uh, of, you know, cocooned away from all of this. And it's just like, the, just like the Church of England, you know, these institutions have been captured by work ideology. Yeah. They, they, the buildings may look the same, they may be wearing robes, but they're completely different institutions yeah. how they were just 20 years ago. Well, exactly
3: right. And they all sit around uh, in the same kind of company talking to each other about what they think the world is actually like without really realising what the world is like. For ordinary people living ordinary lives, trying to get from point A to point B on any given day. I mean, I'd put Theresa May in the same category, um, who has fallen for the uh, the age-old trick of thinking that because she was once Prime Minister, um, she is, has got a much more important view of the world than anybody else. You know, she's now saying that this bill will consign more people to slavery... Which is complete and utter nonsense, because what is currently consigning people to slavery is the ability to bring people here uh, on small boats and then enslave them uh, in the black market. Exactly. I mean, the entire intent of this bill is to deter people
4: from coming to this country. Mm. And the more amendments that are made, the more people try to water down this bill, the less of a deterrence it's going to stand and the more people will be coming into abject slavery. I mean, what this bill does really is it stops, for example, people from Albania claiming to be victims of modern slavery, yeah. which is one of the ways in which they were they were able to stay here for so long. If you're coming from a safe country, you get deported. Yeah. I mean, you know, Sweden has zero immigrants coming uh, claiming asylum from Albania because they know it's a safe country. We need to do the same thing here. Theresa yeah. you know, May is, is famous for having this hostile environment policy. Well, of course, now we know that hostile environment policy was actually very weak. If you really want to make... Uh, this country unattractive. You just have to make it less inviting than France. Mm. You've got to halve the benefits people receive when they get here. You have to confiscate any assets that they have over a certain amount, as they do in in Denmark. And you have to crack down On the black market economy of this country because unlike France which is very tough on immigrants who are tough on businesses that hire illegal immigrants in this country they know that they can disappear so easily into the curry houses and the restaurants of this country and landlords don't do checks on people who are renting from them if we actually got really serious about this we would tackle those two issues as they do in France and we would immediately see a big drop in numbers coming over here
3: yeah absolutely right Finally, let's touch upon the Chinese spy. I mean, I'm not particularly surprised that the Chinese have got spies wandering about uh, in Westminster and very possibly inside the Houses of Parliament. Uh, but apparently, according to the Daily Mail this morning, uh, there was a meeting organised for uh, sort of Chinese dissidents from Hong Kong and the Chinese sent a spy to infiltrate it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't wish to slag off the Daily Mail, but it's not, it doesn't strike me as much of a news story, this really, does it?
4: No, I mean, look, we are in the middle of Cold War two. Right. We are actually in a real Cold War with China. It's time that we woke up to this. People like George Osborne and others, you know, put this nation into such peril, I would say, in terms of security and so forth, by opening up so much of our infrastructure and elsewhere to China, universities have across the across the Anglo sphere these Confucius centres, which are alleged to be like the British Council, uh, cultural exchanges with China, but are far more sinister mm. because, of course, they are they are filled with Chinese spies whose role it is to steal intellectual property from the universities that they're, they're in. Um, we have to understand China's tactics and get serious about this. And, you know, the degree of uh, political correctness, I suppose, that's coming into play here, too, for a fear of, you know, maligning China in some sort of racist way. Yes. It's, it, it's silly. We just have to get serious that they have long term strategies looking at the the future of geopolitics in a 25 to 50 year term when you look at it on a four or five year electoral cycle.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. Rave, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Rave Hadle, Manku, historian, broadcaster and senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Uh, Leslie says this, any decent man, she's talking about the BBC, being wrongly accused of this behaviour, would surely come out to vociferously deny it and to clear his name. Ian says, you mentioned, uh, Ray, the BBC salaries, the ordinary people struggling to pay water rates, mortgages, etc., working all hours on minimum wages with no pay rises. Don't forget that those people are also struggling to pay their enforced BBC licence fees just so that BBC can pay unjustifiable salaries to out-of-touch presenters who are barely seen on TV and who get annual salary increases at the public expense. Well, you said it all there, Ian. You know, it's a bigger scandal in some ways that these people are making so much money for doing so little. It seems extraordinary. I mean, you could literally walk into Broadcasting House and cut all those salaries in half, saving millions to the licence fee payers. And not one of those people would be any the poorer. Ross Atkins, the guy I spoke about before, um, who, of course, is the man who does all the explaining, explainers, who hasn't been very much in vision lately because, obviously, he's keeping his head down. Uh, He's entered uh, the chart very, very quickly and very surprisingly to number 28. He wasn't even in the list last year. Um, He's making £264,999. Nice work if you can get it. Hey, Ross 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. On the
4: app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
3: Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock in the morning. Lots and lots of things to talk about today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Alex Phillips some more about the migrant problem, migrant crisis, why Theresa May is standing up against the government bill uh, to remove people to Rwanda and not only that, uh, but to completely change the way uh, that people are processed and that the belief system uh, that some people will have that this has to stop and it has to stop sooner rather than later. There will be a revolt, but luckily, uh, The migrant bill survives and it goes back to the House of Lords today, uh, having had all sorts of amendments taken out uh, of the place. But let's go now live to Holly Hudson, who is live for us down at Broadcasting House. Uh, She's been covering this story since the beginning of it, of course, uh, as you heard from um, David Bull this morning. This is now day six of the BBC presenter scandal. Uh, We've now got four uh, young people who are in the frame, having said they've been in touch with this individual. Uh, The BBC under more and more pressure, the police looking at the situation as well. Let's find out what the latest is this morning. Holly, Very good morning to you.
5: Very good morning to you, Mike. Yes, as you say, the pressure piling on this still unnamed BBC presenter, this BBC star this morning amid yet further fresh allegations against them over their behaviour. Four allegations now relating to four young people Two have spoken to the Sun in the paper this morning. Claims by one that they were contacted by this star on Instagram. That they sent them creepy messages when they were 17 years old. Another individual, 23-year-old, says that the accuses the BBC presenter of breaking COVID rules, travelling across London during the third national lockdown to meet them after they met on a dating app branded this presenter as a hypocrite this of course comes after an individual in their 20s yesterday approached the bbc's own reporters uh, accusing the star of threatening behavior says that they felt pressured by the presenter to meet up, and when they threatened to expose them on social media, they were sent abusive, expletive-filled, menacing messages. This as well follows, obviously, the initial allegations that first surfaced, first broke in the sun six days ago now, last Friday, by a mother and stepfather who uh, claimed that this presenter paid their child, a teenager, tens of thousands of pounds, for sexually explicit images and it's those claims that of course sparked this whole scandal that has deepened over the past six days of course extraordinary developments uh since i was stood here yesterday in relation to what the bbc have told us they produced their own timeline there's still a lot we don't know about this story in particular in relation to the initial complaint that the mother and stepfather behind those first allegations made to the bbc back in may but what we do know is that it took the BBC's corporate investigations team seven weeks uh, only after The Sun went to the BBC last Thursday with these allegations. Uh, Did they notify the presenter uh, at the heart of all of this and notify senior management we heard from the Director General? Tim Davey uh, of the BBC yesterday in an interview describing these allegations as damaging. He says it's not a good situation, but claims that he has ordered a review of the complaints, procedure, the protocols, when things are red flagged, as he put it. But we heard, of course, uh, the presenter interviewing him, Sarah Montague, questioning how sustainable a situation this is, given that she said everyone in this building knows who the presenter is. And we've heard Jeremy Vine this morning, uh, a fellow BBC Star on his show on Channel 5, once again calling for this presenter to come forward. He says I'm sure his survival instinct has kicked in and he's seen what happened to Philip Schofield, but the longer he leaves it, the worse it will be and the more damage he will do to friends and colleagues more. He says, uh, and vitriol, of course, will be uh, landed on innocent colleagues. And as he put it, uh, the BBC, which I'm sure he loves, is on its knees over this. Now, of course, the Metropolitan Police continues its work today. It's No investigation, a no formal investigation has at this stage been launched. They've asked the BBC to pause their investigation while they conduct Carry out further work, and they say that they're working to establish whether any crime has been committed, and that is of course key here: whether there has been indeed any evidence, or whether there is any evidence of criminality. Until uh, that threshold is, and if it is reached, uh, the police will not be naming uh, this person. Seems yeah. Can I just just interrupt you for,
3: for a second, Holly? Because there's a lot of people asking me a question right now, which is: how is it possible that Philip Schofield's name was so readily available? when he was at the centre of a similar kind of probe inside of ITV. Um, And yet this particular name is still somehow not being mentioned. I don't understand what the difference is.
5: Well, we know that this presenter at the heart of this scandal, of course, has been contacted, but as yet, uh, they haven't responded. The only response that we've had uh, in, in some senses is the letter that the BBC uh, say they saw um, from a lawyer representing the young person at the heart of the original allegations, dismissing the story as rubbish and claiming that uh, no inappropriate behaviour or unlawful behaviour took place. But we've heard this morning from John Sopel, a BBC former correspondent uh, and friend perhaps of uh, a colleague who says that he is very angry at all of these allegations but it would appear as you say that there is maybe a difference here and that it's unlikely that unless this presenter comes forward himself we will know their identity pressure is piling on them though as i say to come forward uh, we know that several other bbc stars have had to distance themselves deny that they're at the heart of this how much longer Can that go on? Of course, we do have Prime Minister's questions with the Deputy Prime Minister uh, coming up today. The Prime Minister himself hasn't been able to escape um, this crisis, of course, commenting that these allegations are shocking. And we may get some uh, more information from the Deputy Prime Minister in the House of Commons today.
3: Thank you very much indeed. Holly Hudson, Talk TV's reporter outside Broadcasting House. I still struggle to find out. We might have to get a legal opinion on this as to what the difference is uh, between the case of uh, Philip Schofield and also uh, up in Scotland, Hardeep Sinkole, uh, who's also been named uh, as the subject of a police investigation uh, into some inappropriate behaviour that's been alleged about him uh, over time. But let's talk now to uh, Andrew Allison from the Freedom Association about this problem because the BBC is very much stuck in a mire of its own making. Andrew, very good morning to you good morning mike so um you've had various issues with the bbc in the past you've you've you, uh, you've sort of uh, suggested that the license fee might be uh coming to the end of its life um what are you making of what you're seeing going on at the moment i mean i was actually quite perturbed to see all these salaries being published yesterday um and some of the amounts of money quite eye-watering
2: Indeed, uh, and I mean the salaries for Gary Lineker, for example, for presenting much of the day, basically for a few weeks a year, yeah. uh, and for and for Alan Shearer. I mean, they're utterly really r- ridiculous salaries. But I mean, in regards to the BBC uh, in this particular debacle, I think it's been a, an utterly inept response by the BBC. In in that interview that Tim Davy gave to Sarah Montague yesterday, yeah, I w- I was I was cringing. Uh, I mean, Sarah Montague was clearly angry that her male colleagues who are completely innocent have been implicated in this because this particular presenter, who we all know who he is, everyone in the BBC does, all journalists know who he is, I know who he is, but we can't name. Uh, Because he hasn't put himself forward uh, and and admitted this, and because the BBC won't name him, all these other male presenters are are being implicated, and, and that is completely wrong. And then, he was defending this this corporate investigations team that, that he has. And so, what a professional job they're doing. Right, who are clearly useless. I, well, well, they are, aren't they? Because when Sarah Montague then challenged him and said, what, one email, one telephone yeah. call to the parents of this young man? And his response was, yes, uh, this is something I need to look into. Tim Davies known about this for almost a week. Yeah. He should have been looking, these are the questions you should have asked last week. Have you contacted the parents? Yes, we couldn't get in touch with them. Well, how many times did you try? Well, one email, one well, telephone call. We'll try harder then. Mm. But it, it, it's Tim Davies is simply not on top of this. And I don't think that he has a future at the BBC for very long.
3: No, it really uh, is, is a puzzling situation in all sorts of different ways. But as I was trying to ask Holly Hudson there, I don't get this business of hiding behind anonymity and this business of, you know, supposedly protecting the privacy of this individual presenter because Philip Schofield didn't get that. Uh, privilege did he I mean there was never a a suggestion that his name should not come out because of the fact that uh, he regarded his privacy as his own business and similarly there's another case in Scotland of a guy who's currently been investigated by the police uh, who has had complaints made against him for all sorts of years and he's a former he's worked at the BBC he's, he's a freelance guy but you know but his name's come out so I don't know what's so special about this BBC presenter that suddenly his name has to be protected.
2: All I can think of is that the BBC has different protocols in place to to that of ITV, and that's the only explanation that I can come up with. I mean, I I'm, I'm on the record of saying that people should be not na- should not be named uh, rather uh, unless criminal charges are brought against them. But this is a complete yeah. Different but that, again, that wasn't
3: the case with 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 Schofield. Schofield didn't no, have criminal charges
2: it, against it, it, him it, either. No, it, it wasn't, Mike, and you're quite correct on that. Um, but that is my general principle. However, this is a very high-profile presenter on the BBC, uh, and by letting this run for days and days and days, you've got the likes of Nikki Campbell and Jeremy Vine threatening legal action against yes. Twitter users for, for for defaming them, and you know quite rightly so. That is not free speech. What has been said about these presenters? It is defamation. Mm. Uh, so. But by letting this continue and roll and roll and roll, the BBC are making it worse for themselves and for their leading talent.
3: Yeah, I think they are. And they're also looking uh, like they don't know what they're doing, which is never a very good look. You know, I mentioned earlier there's a woman called Deborah Turness, who's in charge of all 6,000 journalists. Believe it or not, they've still got 6,000 journalists working there. Um, And she came from the United States of America, where she was head of NBC News. And they were involved in a couple of scandals involving their presenters, which were not so much to do with sexual activity as they were to do with just telling lies. Um, and, and she was criticised for kind of spending too long protecting the presenters. And I wonder whether she has got some role to play in this story as well.
2: Yeah, quite quite, quite possibly. Quite possibly. Uh, but, I mean, the BBC has had enough crises over the years that you would have expected its crisis management team to, to, to be much better. But it just highlights just how inept the BBC really is. It's got this sort of civil service, Sir Humphrey Appleby mentality. Yeah. Uh, and that he, he can just brush things under the carpet or kick things into the long grass, and somehow it will all go away, and this is self-evident. Yeah. I mean, the parents of this young, young man contacted the BBC back in May, and yet we're finding out about this seven weeks later, and that, that just highlights just how bad they are at dealing with a crisis.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. And they still haven't been able to explain why, having failed to contact the family, either by one email or by one telephone call, they then just basically forgot about it. Nobody was told. The story was not spread to anybody further up the chain by the looks of things, and it was not until basically last Thursday that anybody kind of sat up and took any notice of it.
2: Well, we don't know which senior BBC man- managers knew what. It- it's clear that the director general of the BBC, Tim Davie didn't know anything about this until last week you thought with such a high profile presenter that this would have been pushed up the uh, the, the chain of command pretty quickly but it certainly doesn't appear to to have happened uh, and, it, and it does make you wonder just how busy this this uh this investigation mm. unit is i mean are, are, are there literally hundreds of BBC personalities and BBC staff who, who are being
3: reported? Well, for, there are. Inappropriate yeah. according, according to them, they get something like 250 complaints a year about various uh, problems within the BBC I don't know if that's individual presenters but but I mean that is quite a lot of complaints but the fact is is that you know there can't be that many complaints where you get a call from someone who says by the way uh, one of your top presenters um, has been sending money uh, to, uh, to one of our children um, who was only 17 when it began and who is now 20 uh, and who is now a crack addict I mean you can't get many of those calls surely to God
2: Well, no, you can't get many of those calls. And you thought that the alarm bells would have been ringing in Broadcasting House as soon as they got that. But clearly, they haven't. Uh, And for Tim Davy to to praise this wonderful professional team that is so obviously useless uh, was just another cringeworthy moment in his interview with Sarah Montague. I mean, if he thought he was going to get an easy time on the World of one yesterday, well, he was quickly disabused of that thought because Mm. I thought she did a really good professional interview
3: Yes, no, I, th- I think she did, but, but but it showed as well how pompous and ridiculous the BBC's position is on all of this. Andrew, thanks for talking to us. We've got to rush. Andrew Allison from the Freedom Association. A little bit of breaking news for you. Teachers in England, apparently represented by the NASUWT, have voted in favour of industrial action in a dispute over pay. But, of course, it won't be a dispute over pay, will it? It'll be a dispute over the way the schools are run and the way they're funded, because, of course, they haven't got enough money. And this will be a different union from the one that's already out on strike, of course. Uh, so well done to the teachers. Uh, to tomorrow, I think, we're going to be uh, blessed with a strike in the NHS. I think it's junior doctors tomorrow, isn't it? Five days of strikes, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Oh, it means they get got a nice long weekend. So today, if you're a junior doctor... This is your last day until next Tuesday. We'll see you then. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots to do today. It's quite a busy day. There's Prime Minister's questions coming up, which, of course, is not in the company of the Prime Minister because he's away uh, in Vilnius at the NATO summit uh, with old uh, foul-mouthed Joe Biden. As we pointed out today, apparently he's got a tendency to swear a lot. Uh, People say that they're frightened to go into the Oval Office in case he's there on his own and he's in a bad mood and he tells them to F off because he says that from time to time, apparently. Um, He's quite short-tempered, we are told. Uh, We might play that clip again that we played with uh, Kevin earlier this morning when he was trying to pronounce some uh, Asian-American names, uh, getting it rather wrong. But it's quite good. We'll come to that later on. We're going to talk to Jamie Jenkins in a moment. Let me read you a couple of tweets, though, uh, and texts that we've got here. Mike, I really do commend you for not losing your rag day in, day out. This just gets worse and worse and worse. The average cost in the UK for an MRI scan is £395. If immigrants are having to get MRI scans to prove uh, who they are, they are not the age that they say they are. It just adds up, once again, in the public purse. If they don't have documentation to prove their name, their age and country of birth, they should not touch foot on English soil. It's as simple as that. Otherwise, the costs are just going to keep going up and up and up. Where on earth uh, does it end? Um, here's one from somebody who uh, doesn't give a name, unfortunately, but they say, uh, Gary Lineker's salary, it would take me 54 years to earn what he can get in a year. It's staggering, isn't it? Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Mike says, Barry, I believe we licence fee paying plebs also cover Alan Shearer's travel costs from Newcastle to London. The BBC needs to take its head uh, start, start hard and get on with it. If you can't afford to live in London, Move. Well, indeed. Uh, The wages, uh, Nick says, that BBC pay their presenters are disgusting. They could halve the licence fee and pay them a sensible wage. It's just another example of how the poor old British public gets shafted financially. It is sickening. Well, it is. And you get, of course, a lot of these BBC presenters basically preaching to you about what you should be doing. I mean, one of the things we learned from The Sun story this morning is that the presenter currently in in the middle of the firestorm um, actually broke lockdown rules, uh, which he was actually telling everybody they had to stick to Uh, in order to see one of these young people that he was consorting with. What an extraordinary state of affairs. Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, our favourite statistician down in Welsh Wales. Jamie, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Uh, The world's gone mad as usual. Well, I I mean, I tell you what, I mean, I don't remember the last time we came in and kind of didn't have anything to talk about. I mean, there was a time when the news cycle occasionally went quiet i mean this is potentially supposed to be the silly season you know there's no football on you know people take a bit of time out there's meant to be the courts closing down soon they'll shut down parliament you know it was meant to be a little bit quiet in those days but i don't think it's ever going to be quiet ever again
1: no, it's no football on, Mike, but Lineker's still managing to probably earn a million pounds a year. You know, That's one of the good things being Gary Lineker. Yeah. You can earn a fortune and, and the football's not on. You can argue you get paid for the World Cup maybe, I suppose, I during mean, some, some years uh, or every one,
3: year. Somebody once said to me, the trick in life is to make money while you sleep. And I think he's managed <laughs> it very, very well indeed. Let's talk a bit about the COVID inquiry. You've been tweeting about it, um, some Welsh um, relevance as well. But, but, I mean, the COVID inquiry thus far hasn't produced many statistics for you, has it? No,
1: well, the first part of this COVID inquiry, Mike, is module one, which is focusing pretty much on how the different countries prepared for the pandemic. So it's a pretty, pretty boring part of it, I suppose. You know, I think if you go on the COVID inquiry YouTube channel, it's pretty much streaming all day, every day, and it's going to last till 2026, Mike. So I think a lot of people will be falling asleep by the end of uh, 2026 on that. But we are getting some little bits because there's naturally... Hancock's been there, Whitty's been there, you've had Jeremy and Cameron, you know, we've had loads of people there. And some stuff has been coming out, which is a little, which is a bit of interest, I suppose. So one of the things that I've taken over the last three or four weeks, just from a Welsh perspective, and I'll I'll just give you some thoughts on Whitty in a second, Mike, is that last week, um, Vaughan Gethin, so he was the the Welsh minister in charge of health. Yeah. So, you know, in Wales, similar to what in England, you'd have him rocking up on press conferences with Drakeford every now and again during the pandemic. And there was a question put to him about looking at the, the, you know, the plans to prepare for a pandemic. Because remember, health is devolved. This England run their health system, Wales run their own. So Mm. he was asked by one of the barristers there uh, about looking at the documents related to kind of pandemic plans in Mm. Wales. And he admitted he hadn't read anything before kind of the pandemic. And they asked, when did you read them? Uh, and his response was, well, I've read them in preparation for this inquiry. It's remarkable, Mike. It you know, amazing, a, a, minister, a minister now, he may not have had time to have read them all maybe at the first start of his appointment. But surely, Mike, when a pandemic hit and they were going to say, well, what are we going to do? Surely we got some plans on this. That would have been the time to have read it. And Drakeford yesterday, Mark Drakeford in the in the Senate was questioned on this by the Conservative leader, Andrew R.T. Davis. And he kind of defended him saying, it's not possible for ministers to look at the back catalog of documents.
3: Even though some of these documents, Mike, were relevant at the time that the minister was in post. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing you could do during COVID was read an awful lot because there wasn't much else to do. And even if you're a government minister in Wales, presumably there was a lot of downtime because you weren't going to functions, you weren't really doing much uh, in the actual public arena because you couldn't. You were working on Zoom doing everything. And also... These people have all got special advisors, haven't they, that we pay for? Why are the special advisors not kind of um, making, doing a summation of whatever the uh, uh, pandemic rules are uh, and giving them the sort of bullet points from it?
1: Exactly. So, you know, if you get a new CEO who takes over a company, they may not know the ins and outs of that company, but the role of a CEO or any senior person in business, Mike, as you will know, is to ask the right questions. You will learn. And if you're not actually understanding your brief, you're not going to ask the right questions. Mm. And you spoil, I guarantee, Mike, you know, we'll get more in module two. That's going to be the tasty stuff. I'm sure you'll be covering a lot more of that because that's going to basically go into what were the reasons and the evidence behind Boris and Drakeford and Sturgeon doing all of these different measures. But I, I guarantee, Mike, there'll be nothing in this pandemic plan that, remember Drakeford put these um bans on certain aisles in shops. Well, I'm just looking by... at your,
3: uh, your Twitter and I remember that yeah. people were up in arms, weren't they? Because they made certain things completely off-limits and they said were not essential items, which I think also did not include some clothing and newspapers as well.
1: Oh, yeah, Mike, some really bonkers stuff was decided on this. The argument the Welsh Government gave at the time is we've closed all these other smaller stores that sell similar stuff. Right. So we've got to stop Tesco's and Asda's, you know, the big supermarket selling it as well, which which was nonsense, Mike. But the other thing I'll probably touch on from the COVID inquiry which is what Hancock and Whitty have said in recent weeks so uh, Hancock was doubling down on you know we maybe we we got to recognise we might need hard long fast lockdowns maybe earlier but Chris Whitty that's the most remarkable thing I've viewed so far in the inquiry when he came out and said that He was challenged specifically on lockdowns, which meant that you would have to stay indoors, you know, not a really stringent quarantine for the whole population. And his admission, Mike, was that he would have thought it would have been very strange for SAGE to have suggested that unless a senior politician did. So Mm. I think we need to find out in module two, who
3: were these senior politicians pushing for lockdowns? Well, this is the thing, because there, there are two different narratives going on here. Because one was that Boris Johnson didn't want to lock down and therefore was told to do so by uh, the scientists and the scientists convinced him. But they tell a different story and they say, no, absolutely not. We actually urged him not to lock down at the beginning. Um, And you know that because we were told that we wouldn't stop people coming into the country at the airport because apparently, according to the scientists, the, the virus is already here. So there's no point in shutting down the airports. But we weren't allowed to go anywhere.
1: Well, hopefully there's documentation on a lot of this, Mike. So Boris, that's one of the things. Well, hopefully you've got
3: the WhatsApp messages, right?
1: Well, yeah. Well, one of the stories that's kind of been kept off the front pages by this BBC storm this week is Boris Johnson's first phone. So remember a few weeks back, Mike, he said, I'm going to hand over all my documents. And then they went to the court to say, well, we don't want to hand over everything of Boris Johnson's. This is the government. Well, he's got another phone. uh, And this phone actually goes at the start. of the pandemic up to I think around May 2021. It's been switched off uh, since then because of a security breach because apparently his number was um, available online for people. So they're trying to work out at the moment, like how to switch this phone on mm. so they can get access to the water. You know, we're in the 21st century here, am I? Trying to switch on a phone, absolute nonsense here. So you would hope these SAGE meetings that were going on, there's minutes of who said what, what was the advice? Because at the moment, Mike, all I'm hearing, politicians blaming officials and officials blaming politicians it's a bit of you know they've got a fault we're at fault you're at fault who's getting the answers we won't get a report mike until about probably in this rate 2030 oh absolutely mike you know how many people who whose lives are put on hold were going to be dead before they even knew the outcome of what we're going to and the thing that's just crucial crucial in this one mike is you know we're talking about how we were prepared for the pandemic we're talking about how we've responded to the pandemic. You know, we need some answers, Mike, because the cost of living crisis, Andrew Bailey again this morning talking about inevitable that people will have problems paying their mortgages. The cost of living crisis was directly related to the pandemic response as well. And yeah. so you can't divorce all of the mess that we're in now from the decisions
3: that were made. But will the COVID inquiry go into that? I very much doubt. Well, that's the thing. You know, it's probably not qualified to do so. But people like Peter Hitchens were warning from the beginning that this furlough business, that the locking down of the economy, that the closing down of of railway stations and all of that was going to have a massive knock on effect. And inflation was going to go through there. If he actually used those words that inflation was going to be affected, everything he said has come completely and utterly true.
1: Well, the one good thing for me, Mike, is I think a lot of us found you through the pandemic into the home of common sense. True. Listen, listening to you, Mike, through the pandemic, and also you got me on part of the way through it, has been a kind of a lifeline for a lot of people because mm. you know, you're cutting through a lot of the nonsense that's been discussed and all of this. You're right. Printing all of that money by the Bank of England, having that furlough scheme, started the fuel, you know fueling the inflation yeah. crisis. The lockdowns meant the energy demand went down, so the companies want to make their money back. So the cost of energy, you know, from the suppliers around the world has gone through the roof. Mm. And and the mental thing now, Mike, is you've got the same people who are loving life in their gardens. During lockdown, you know, that first lockdown, struggling now
3: to even pay their mortgages in the same gardens. It's absolutely mental. I know, because people were re-educated, if you like, and many people quite enjoyed the re-education. If they had a middle class job and a laptop and they could sit at home, um, you know, smiling at the wife and petting the dog and having a cheese sandwich and not having to go out, sit on a horrible stuffy packed train with loads of other ghastly people they didn't like, you know. And now they don't want to do any work because why wouldn't they?
1: And that's what's changed the world, I think, over the last three years. There's some advantages to having less commuting going on. But, you know, one of the key things when it's talking about the working from home bit there, Mike, Mm. is you cannot beat, especially the younger people, you cannot beat that time in the office, learning, being mentored by individuals. That bit's kind of been lost. And where I you know, where I live in Wales, Mike, the Welsh government actively discourage people going to work it's as if it's still in the middle
3: of pandemic. Partly to do with, you know, net zero climate change. It's better if you're all alone. Yeah. Well, don't get me started on that. The one question I would ask you, I don't know if you heard this story at the weekend, but I was talking to Richard Tyson about it, that um, the Met Office um, has admitted, apparently, to kind of slightly adjusting, some of the figures when it comes to the temperature of the world over the course of the last several decades. So much so um, that in the sort of period between, say, 2002 going back to the kind of 90s, they've slightly turned down the volume to make it look as if it was cooler, and they've slightly turned up the volume since 2002 to make it seem as if it was hotter. So that when they said the other day that, you know, last Monday, I think it was, a week ago Monday, was the hottest day uh, ever in the entire history of the world, it actually wasn't. Now, the, the main thing I point out when I talk about this, uh, Mike,
1: is, you know, the world is, is, is a long, you know, long, long time we had the world going. You know, even if you just consider, say, the last 2000 years, that's only a fraction of how long the world's been here. But a lot of these decisions on, you know, the climate and the you know, temperatures rising are based on pretty much data from the last 100, 150 years. And I think on that temperature one there, the Met Office, I believe, has got some data that goes back even further, which would question whether or not that was a record. So I think ultimately all you seem to get from the Met Office these days is warnings of this. Warning We obviously have this heat wave going across Europe at the moment, I think, big warnings. And the thing in Wales last week, we were warned of a heat wave. When the temperature is going to get up to 23 degrees, that's pretty much summer, isn't it, Mike?
3: Well, exactly right. That's what we call it. You know, 23 degrees. Very nice. Very uh, pleasant to walk around in. Uh, It's nice that it's not to be uh, not raining, for heaven's sake. But listen, Jamie, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Jamie Jenkins there with an update uh, for us on what's going on at the COVID inquiry, which, of course, is still ongoing. Laura Donsworth mentioned it yesterday. And yet very few people are actually picking up on what's being said and what's being decided. And I think we have to be very careful not to take our eyes off these people because you know what happens when you do that. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike
4: Graham on Talk Radio.
3: Let's talk now, though, to Alex Phillips, former MEP, of course, and now associated with the Reform Party. We want to talk to her about the migration problem in this country because there's still a problem. Theresa May uh, is now taking a stand against the government saying that this um, migration bill uh, is going to make it more easy for people to turn other people into slaves and there'll be more slave drivers making money out of human misery. Uh, I'm not quite sure where she's coming from on that. Alex a very good morning to you.
6: Good morning,
3: Mike. So, Theresa May, I mean, I was saying this earlier to Kevin O'Sullivan. These, these people who were prime minister in the past seem to think that their opinions are worth more than everybody else's. I'm not sure why, but surely the point about the migration bill is to stop people being enslaved as they currently are.
6: Right, I think, I mean, what's happened, essentially, I think what she's complaining about is the fact that a lot of people now who are coming over from places like Albania are using the argument that they are being brought in to work in the black markets and therefore slaves yeah. to try and stay in the country. Um, and if the government proposed to change this piece of legislation in order to continue to deport people from Albania back to Albania, she is essentially saying that, well, that's going to open things up for anybody being able to be made a slave. The, the problem here that I have with all of this is the government have put forward a piece of legislation to try and stop this issue. They have said they want to stop the boats from coming. Frankly, I think they know that it was going to fall at every hurdle, and that they can blame everybody else and right. say, "But we've." but what's really sticking in my core is the fact that you've got all of these unelected people in the lords doing everything everything to stand in the way of this bill they are pulling up amendments they're changing this they're changing that and we've just found out actually that the government are now spending a lot more on the the migration issue than they are on leveling up yeah this is essentially now taking money out of the back pockets of taxpayers in a cost of living crisis and prioritising people who are essentially trying to break into this country illegally. Yes. I don't know what can be done about it at this stage, because whatever comes out of the House of Lords and back to the government in terms of this migration bill is going to have been so chewed over and savaged, it's going to be effectively useless, mm. it's not to be able to deliver on anything. And I just think, well, how on earth do we deal with this as a country now? How are we, I mean, we saw this with Brexit. The big issues that matter to the public end up being stuck in some sort of stagnant heave-ho party politics uh, in the Lords, mm. in the Commons, and they don't get done. No. We don't in democracy anymore.
3: We really don't because the Lords put in all these amendments. The Commons have now stripped 15 of the amendments out. Sending it back to the Lords will presumably result in the 15 amendments being put back in. Um, And then it will come it'll take ages to come back. Eventually, probably the bill will pass, as you say. But in the end, there will be some watering down uh, and there will still be these people like the bishops and like many of the people in the Lords uh, who will regard anyone who thinks this is a good bill uh, as some kind of racist bigot who doesn't hate, hates individuals from other countries.
6: Yeah, I mean, the point I always make to people is in your house, do you leave your front door open? No, no. Go to bed at night, do you leave your front door unlocked, your back door open and say to people, look, if you're homeless, mm. if you've had a late night and you've missed your last bus, come on, you can stay over at mine. You don't do it just in case an opportunist comes in and nicks your telly. Right. That you don't do it. And it's even just- if
3: you did do it, you would vet the person. What you wouldn't say is bring 50 of your mates in and you can just stand in the living room until there's literally no more room for anyone.
6: Right, come and hang out in my house and uh, while you wait for me to decide whether or not I want you as my roommate. Yes. I mean, it's not a thing. No. And I don't understand how this constantly gets distorted into somehow being a racist policy. Countries have always managed their borders. That's what makes it a country. You have a civic contract with your government. You pay into the tax system. You get public services back. That is what being a resident of a country is. You can't just say, well, any old person can come and live here now. And it just, I'm getting so frustrated. The government needs to take bold action. Frankly, I've said from the start that all of these plans are under plan. They're all wind, window dressing for the government to apportion blame to someone else. Because the only thing that's going to work well, is to turn States. Well, is it a- only-
3: absolutely is. And and I mean, we have, and I say this often, and probably till I'm blue in the face, that this all goes back to Angela Merkel's ridiculous decision when she was Chancellor of Germany to allow anybody into Western Europe if, as long as they were Syrian. And so, of course, everybody said they were Syrian. I was just seeing a piece this morning, uh, basically saying that Germany's open door to migrants has now sent it lurching to the right. So they're now, you know, a bit like Italy, because they've had a problem with, with migrants. Um, and same in Germany now. Um, you know, right-wing parties are going to come through. So for these do-gooders, it's actually having the opposite effect of what they think.
6: Yeah, I agree entirely. And Robert Jenrick sort of said this in a roundabout way yesterday, talking about community cohesion and all the rest of it. What he was saying was, look at what's been going on in France. We don't want race riots here. But, you know, when you look at the, the the Prime Minister of the Netherlands has just been booted out of office yeah. over, in part, this migration issue. Right. You've got Poland now having a referendum on migration, and they're going to go back to the EU and say, We're not going to tolerate this anymore. And the EU will say, You know, go away, basically. Yeah. We're not going to deviate from our plan this is becoming a huge issue yeah. across europe and you are absolutely right if the continent does not deal with this in a cohesive manner there will be uprisings yeah. i don't think it's necessarily going to happen in britain first because we're generally a country that doesn't go about setting fire to cars and um, you know having mass demos yeah. but we are going to start seeing huge inflection points across europe yeah. It's a real danger because everyone keeps going about international treaties and international obligations and we must all help refugees and migrants and people from poor countries and people prosecuted for their sexuality in three quarters of the world. Guess what? The public don't agree with that. And frankly, we can't.
3: No, quite. But we're already seeing little flashpoints here. I mean, I know it doesn't happen an awful lot, but, you know, the number of migrants now coming into the country and occupying hotels. We found out yesterday that they're now booking hotels and keeping them empty just in case more migrants come. So they clearly know that that is going to happen. They clearly know that there's no way they're going to stop the boats. We've seen down in and um, uh, some local people there complaining bitterly and, and being arrested by the police because they don't want a particularly nice hotel to be overtaken. Everybody's already been fired. You know, the whole situation is what is nationwide, and, and it, I think it is going to turn into a problem.
6: Yeah, it is going. I mean, it, it already is. We've seen a few sort of, you know, issues going on already. There was that situation with the girls' school in Dover, yeah. or the school in Dover, where they, uh, you know, the, the claim was that uh, one of them had been gang-raped by... Yeah would arrive from the boats um and look i'm not saying in any stretch that everyone getting on a boat is some sort of criminal or convict or terrorist or not a needy and deserving person some of them
3: are for sure
6: but some of them are it's the same analogy as you leave your front door open nine out of ten people are good and would probably pull your front door shut or shout Mm. did you realize your front door's open but there's always going to be that person who goes, oh, great, I'm going to go in and steal stuff. So, you know, we've got to be realistic about this. But I'm afraid it's just it seems clear to me now that when we have the big issues that people are saying, I'm not happy about this. And the politicians know exactly what the public want, They constantly fail to deliver it. They grandstand. They use it as a political football. They use it to shower themselves in moral rectitude when the issues don't particularly affect them. And they refuse to do what the public wants. Mm. And this a huge problem in British politics.
3: And I bet you the next problem we're going to have is Robert Jenrick's suggestion uh, that from next year or from very soon uh, thereafter, they're going to start actually um, age testing migrants coming through, whether it's done by x-ray, whether it's done by um, MRI scan, you know, but I bet you any money that somebody between now and then will get it made illegal, you know, whether it's by the ECHR, whether it's through the appeals court, whether it's through the House of Lords, somebody will say, oh, no, you can't do that. But we know that certainly in some cases people have come here claiming to be kids and they're like 41.
6: Yeah, I know. I know. And then they go into the school system, they go into a foster care. It's absolutely insane. I mean, you know, people have all sorts of ways and means of getting into the country, deceiving the authorities about who they are and what they intend to do and then disappearing. Um, and it's a it's a big issue. Um, and, and, and as you said, this is something that the, the authorities should be listening to the people. They should be taking every measure yeah. necessary to stand up for our country's frontiers. But something very strange has happened in politics. And it seems increasingly to me, and not just in Britain, but the entirety of the West, when standing on the international stage, pleasing people in these NGOs and supranational organisations, is coming before the countries themselves. I don't understand when the UK government stopped representing the UK and instead wanted to represent the
3: WHO, the WEF, the UN, right. United. You know well, I mean, this is the thing. The money now is all in those kinds of organisations, isn't it? The charitable sector's got loads of money. You know, the uh, intergovernmental sector, the NGOs, all of the kind of places where people give money uh, to organisations where they don't really earn it. That's where all the money's gone. You know, there isn't any commercial money available. There isn't any money left in the high street. It's very hard to make any proper money as a business in this country. But set yourself up as a charity. Bob's your uncle.
6: Yeah, and, and, and yet you look at some of the wealthiest countries per capita on earth, Places like Saudi Arabia, for example, who every year when you have the the, the big pilgrimage for Hajj, Mm. uh, set up camps that can accommodate hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people coming to Mecca. And yet, from all these neighboring countries that have had issues, uh, they're not looking after those people. They're not saying come and and we'll Mm. accommodate. You hear, they're turning a blind eye, and so they're all coming across to Europe. I don't understand that either. Why are we not putting pressure on all of these other countries mm. to do their bit? Why Why is Europe turning and going, yeah. we've got to take our fair share? It's a Europe issue. It's not a Europe no. issue. No, no
3: it's, it's, really, it's really not. It's, a, it's an in African Africa, issue. Um, and, not uh, our, these aren't our issues. And right. the best thing we can do is, first of all, help
6: the countries set up Secure accommodation, or whatever it might might need, for neighbouring countries or the countries where these people are originating from. By all means, give them uh, foreign aid, give them foreign direct investment. I agree with that entirely. But the problem is not a problem to be solved on European shores.
3: No, it's a very well made point, Alex. Thank you as ever. Thank you very much indeed, Alex a former MEP. This is not a problem that we need to solve because it's not our problem. Alex is absolutely right to say that. How about this? Uh, A name that I didn't mention a bit earlier on the BBC list, John Simpson, uh, who's currently 79 years of age, been with the BBC since 1970. He apparently makes 185,000. He doesn't quite make the top 50. But what on earth does he do, says Chris? Talk about the gift that keeps on giving. Well, they wheel him out from time to time when there's a new war or something, don't they? But he probably appears on uh, the BBC no more than half a dozen times a year. 185 grand. Brilliant. This is Talk TV.
0: See it, hear it, think it. Talk
3: radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republican. Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on today, of course. Prime Minister's question is already underway. There's already been suggestions that somebody might just uh, ask a question which might. Uh, reveal the name of the BBC presenter that nobody wants to name uh, because they could have parliamentary privilege for doing so. Uh, if they do that, obviously we will let you know, although well, Peter Cardwell's keeping an eye on things and he'll tell us what the highlights and the lowlights are uh, coming up in about half an hour's time. First up though, we've got Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor uh, from The Telegraph and we've got plenty to talk to Annabelle about. Let me just read you a couple of tweets out first. Uh, Christopher in Yorkshire says, Mike, the reason the BBC pay ridiculous salaries is because it's not their money. They are not the shareholders. Uh, and how about this one, from ian in glasgow he says mike do you think fiona bruce will phone in sick tomorrow to avoid question time i don't watch it but i will tomorrow can't wait well i don't know who's, who's even on question time uh, but we shall see uh, let's talk to annabelle denham and find out what's going on in her world annabelle very good afternoon to you
7: good afternoon.
3: <laughs> oh you're sounding a little you're sounding a little bit iffy we'll see if we can get that to be a slightly better line because there was a bit of a hesitation there um Holly Hudson uh, is live for us down outside Broadcasting House uh, for Talk TV. Uh, Let's have a a, a quick chat to her. Holly, um, welcome to the afternoon session. Um, What are you hearing?
5: Well as you say we may well, very unlikely, but may well hear uh, that the name of the presenter is revealed in Deputy Prime Minister's questions uh, using parliamentary privilege. has happened but in very rare circumstances. Um, But today here of course pressure piling on the as yet still unnamed Presenter, This time yesterday, Mike, uh, I was listening to Tim Davey, the BBC's Director General, defend the corporation's delay in responding to the initial complaint by the mother and stepfather behind the initial allegations that sparked all of this. Uh, they, of course, allege that the BBC presenter paid their teenager tens of thousands of pounds for sexually explicit images. Tim Davy yesterday admitting that these allegations were damaging to the BBC, that this was not a good situation. It would seem that today the situations got worse for the BBC and indeed the presenter in question. Yet despite uh, the number of new allegations and extraordinary developments in the past 24 hours, still no words, still no comment from them or their legal team, uh, even to their own reporters who we know have reached out. What we have heard is from John Sopel, a former BBC correspondent who spoke out in a podcast saying that this presenter is angry at the allegations. And uh, meanwhile, Jeremy Vine this morning uh, on his show, another BBC presenter calling, urging on him to speak out to Come forward, saying the longer that he leaves it, the longer, it, uh, the worse it will be for him, not just for him, for colleagues and the BBC, and that he's worried about his state of mind. And I think the question really is now whether this presenter will bow to that pressure. We heard Sarah Montague in her interview with Tim Davie uh, on Radio um, Radio Four yesterday in the world at once, saying that everybody in this building knows who it is, and we're hearing now as well that US media may have named the uh, presenter in question. But of course, privacy laws come into play. Here. Here in the UK, don't they, Mike? And we know that they, of course, were made stricter just last year in favour of the individual. And the question is as well whether the Metropolitan Police, in their inquiries, will find that any crime has been committed. They are still working to establish whether there has been any criminality. They say they are conducting further inquiries and further work today
3: okay thank you very much indeed holly hunter there down for us outside a broadcasting house where uh, she's been for about the last three days uh we still await any further news coming either out of the bbc or out of the police or indeed perhaps uh, out of prime minister's questions which is ongoing let's go back to annabelle denham now i think we've sorted out the uh, uh the sound issue uh annabelle hopefully uh, we've got you back in a slightly better way um Let's talk about the Bank of England and inflation first up, because they've been accused of losing control of inflation, which is a pretty serious charge given that that's literally their job.
7: That's right, though I'm not sure this is the first time they've been accused of (laughs) losing control. That much has been clear for some time, but what we have now is a clearer picture of just how bad things are and how bad they may get we're finding out that the cost of living squeeze could endure for another 10 months that by next may typical households will be two thousand three hundred pounds worse off we know that mortgages are going to be jumping by as much as 500 pounds a month for possibly a million households there are hundreds of thousands who could see their repayments go up by a thousand pounds every month this is really significant this is going to sting and i think people are going to be filled with a complete sense of dread. And what is frustrating is that I have some sympathy with the Bank of England, that they were under immense pressure during the pandemic to print vast sums of money in order to pay for the government's uh, plans, be they furlough or loans going to businesses, ways of supporting the self-employed, and so on and so forth. But what they didn't seem to realise was that this massive increase in the broad supply of money was going to trigger inflation. And, you know, it's fair to say, that they were asleep at the wheel when they did finally start raising interest rates in december 2021 they did so very very slowly much slower than compared to say the fed um and they seem to believe that it was transient for a long time and now look where we find ourselves with very sticky persistently high inflation um 8.7 according to the latest data and core inflation when you strip out volatile prices like energy and food is actually going up mm-hmm. so, you know we've completely lost confidence in the Bank of England to address this not only do they seem to have their diagnosis of the problem wrong um, but they're not administering the right cure and the problem we have now is that with the latest uh, wage data showing that wages in the year to May 2023 went up 7.3 percent there's going to be further pressure on the Bank of England to introduce more interest rate hikes already it was quite uh, unexpected that they would raise it to five percent at the last meeting of the Monetary Policy Committee but they did press ahead with that and you know markets are going to be factoring in possibly interest rates increases of you know to six or seven percent and that's going to lead to but the pain down the line but the trouble is that we're now in this impossible situation where we either we have this persistently high inflation or we tip ourselves into a recession in order to bring it down it's you know it's not a very yeah. uh, appealing choice
3: no it really isn't and i know that you and i would not be probably in in favor particularly of, of more government kind of you know economic restraint being put on banks or anything like that but are the banks sort of taking advantage of this more than they perhaps should, because presumably all of this extra money that they're going to be charging people every month uh, is going to go to their coffers, by and large, isn't
7: it? I think it's immensely complicated. Certainly, then, there is a case to be made that they are not passing on some of the benefits of interest rate rises right. to savers in the way that they right. are punishing mortgage holders for it. Um, and that certainly needs to be scrutinised. And the Chancellor has been meeting with you know heads of banks to try and thrash this out. Um, Of course, what the government has done is to dismiss demands for some kind of mortgage bailout. And it's absolutely right to do so. For a start, that would be grossly unfair to renters who themselves are often on lower incomes than those who own their own homes. Um, But also, it wouldn't be addressing the problem. If you want to uh, bring down demand in the economy, by raising interest rates then you do not at the same time cushion people from the impact of raising those interest rates The whole point is that this needs to hurt um, you know it's extremely unfortunate I think the situation was avoidable we didn't need such a massive increase in the supply of money during the coronavirus pandemic a lot of those support schemes particularly furlough went on for much longer than they needed to there were real problems that were made um, but you know this simply is not the best way of addressing them
3: no I don't think it is and also, we've still got strikes ongoing. I think the doctor's strike begins tomorrow. Uh, the teachers who are not in the main teaching union, the uh, the ones who are in the other one, the NASUWT, have announced another strike uh, for later on in the year. Uh, we've got all sorts of problems with, with you know the travel business, the rail companies as well. And then I see a story in The Telegraph this morning um, that the ministry, um, or the Treasury, rather, is telling ministers, individual ministers, that if they want uh, to be given any sort of money in the new financial year, um, they're going to have to take cuts in their department. So, I mean, that's going to be a negative effect on the economy as well, isn't it?
7: Yes, although I think it's welcome that the government is saying it cannot continue borrowing in order to fund departmental spending Mm. for, you know, a long time. Successive governments have failed to balance the books. We've been living far beyond our means. There hasn't really been any appetite to significantly reduce government spending. My concern is that this is going to lead to salami slicing across the board, which is what we saw in the 2010s, rather than the government taking a step back and asking whether there are areas of policy that actually it doesn't need to be involved in at all do we actually need a department for culture media and sport anymore you know or is well, it seems like they're
3: in the news an awful lot at the moment with itv and the bbc i mean i think you probably need an entire department just to watch over them don't you
7: Well, quite possibly. But um, but I think that a lot of what the DCMS does could be rolled into other departments, sport, for instance, could go into education. Does the government actually need to be involved in childcare on the level that it is? And of course, in the latest budget, we had that announcement that the government will be offering free childcare for uh, any child uh, over the age of nine months. It's going to cost around four billion pounds a year. Rather than just trying to ever so slightly trim departmental budgets across the board, I think we really need to question whether, as I say, whether we should just be getting rid of departments altogether. Now, I'm not suggesting we go back to the days of Adam Smith. He believed that um, the functions of government should probably be limited to justice and Mm -hmm. defence. But I certainly think that it has grown far too big. Its tentacles are reaching into all aspects of our lives, all aspects of business lives, you know, wrapping them in red Mm. tape we need a fundamental rethink. The Conservative Party needs to go back to first principles and ask itself what government is actually there to do. Because at the moment we have this ratchet and it's making it impossible to reduce government spending. And of course, the other problem is that we've got a bloated nationalised healthcare system and politicians who are unwilling to implement any kind of reform. Um, we've got you know, welfare payments that are going up and up and up, an increase in the number of long-term sick, around half a million. More people on uh, long-term sickness benefit than there were before the pandemic. You know, these are these are huge issues. But if we're going to ring fence those, which are, you know I I would question, then we've got to look at other areas of government spending and consider whether those are necessary at all.
3: Yeah, I think government's got way too big. There's no question about that. Coming up uh, with Annabel Denham, we're going to talk about Thames Water. They've got an idea uh, to raise even more money for them, uh, which will cost you more money uh, if you happen to have a big garden. They want you to cough up and give them even more money, just because uh, you can afford it, and also Elon Musk entering the electricity market. What can we say about that? More with uh, Annabel Denham and myself coming next on Talk TV, online on DAB Plus Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Prime Minister's question is still underway. Uh, it hasn't happened. If that's the next question you're going to ask me, uh, but we're keeping an eye just in case. Peter Cardwell will be in shortly to let us know what the highlights were. Annabel Denham's here, deputy comment editor of the Telegraph. And uh, Annabel, I'm actually looking at the front page of the Telegraph as I as I cherry pick a couple more stories for you. Big garden may mean a bigger water bill. I mean, you think Thames Water um, would have been fed up enough already with all the bad publicity they've been getting? They've already lost one uh, chief executive they have now got an interim uh, co-chief and chief executive officer called Catherine Ross, who seems to think it's a good idea to start charging people even more money for their useless service if they've got a big garden on the grounds that they must be able to afford it.
7: They've really been inviting the negative publicity, haven't they? And of course, Thames Water's new chair uh, is in front of MPs today, yeah. Sir montague he's been talking about how nationalization is not the right way forward and and i certainly would agree with him there but no when it comes to penalizing those who have big gardens um this may well be the obvious solution for what is essentially a monopolistic water provider but it's completely illogical um for a start you know the problem isn't big gardens with absorbent ground it's actually big developments that may not have proper drainage for groundwater that's what's going to be exacerbating our sewage problem but those are the ones um you know it's the big gardens the owners big gardeners who gardens who would have um You know, punitive um, bills to pay. Um, But I think, you know, it feeds into this sort of assumption that we have now that whenever there's an issue with our utilities, the solution must always be to control demand. It's never to actually solve what the issues may be um, and increase supply. It's just that we all have to change our behaviours. So, of course, uh, we have hosepipe uh, bans that are in place up and down the country for large chunks of the year. There was that story earlier this year about changing our shower heads yeah. so they would use uh, less water. So we're not allowed to have power showers anymore. Rather than asking, you know, why is it that the basics don't work? Why is it that we have an energy crisis or we'll be going into an energy crisis again this winter? Why is it that we have to have water rationing? Rather than, you know, what are the actual solutions to this? And it's possible that the solutions are higher bills, but at least let's be honest with people about it and present them with the trade offs rather than forcing them to cut back, forcing them to change their behaviours as a result of what is essentially ineptitude by yeah. regulating well, it's I mean, funny. you'd
3: have some sympathy with the water companies if they were any good at what they do, but they're not, you know, because as soon as they uh, uh, don't have enough rain, they say there's going to have to be a drought. As soon as there's too much rain, uh, they say there's going to have to be a flood and the sewage is going to overspill into the sea and into the rivers. You know, uh, also the amount of water that leaks into the ground, they haven't seemed to get around uh, fixing either. So, in fact, if they did all of those things better, we would all be happier. We would be able to pay less money. There are many countries in the world where they do different things. Like, I think in Holland, they they re. Recycle water sort of house by house so you can actually physically recycle your own water and use it for different things and that would be for example a better idea um, than just charging everybody more money
2: that's
7: right. It's pretty pathetic for a country in the developed world that there's absolutely no innovation whatsoever mm. in this sector. Now, what we have to acknowledge is that we're in the difficult situation where our water network is antiquated. A lot of it dates back to the Victorian times. And to modernise it will be extremely expensive. People are going to have to pay a lot more for water. Or, on the other hand, they have to accept that there are, is going to be leakage. Um, but what we certainly don't want is you know, some kind of nationalisation of the water sector. Now of course it's only quasi-nationalised anyway, right. and it's overseen by uh, Offwards, who have a lot to answer for um, themselves. Um, you know, clearly, these companies have been badly run. They deserve, you know, proper scrutiny but were we to nationalize they'd actually have less transparency there would be less accountability because we'd be paying those bills through general taxation we wouldn't necessarily know where our money is going but you know just just to move on to the elon musk story Mm. mike how interesting it is that when you have a great industrialist wanting to come in and shake up um the electricity market people are instinctively opposed to that here in Britain. So while you or I might talk about ways in which we can innovate and ways in which we can improve Mm. um, utilities, actually, I fear that, you know, at a national level, members of the public are quite instinctively opposed to this. And actually, what we need to favour is greater competition, greater transparency, greater accountability, because, um, you know, we've got to address this problem. And at the government level, of course, a massive issue is that we failed to build a reservoir in 30 years. We've got one desalination plant in the whole country that I don't think is currently open and that part of that is because of nimbyism everybody's in favour of the idea that we need more reservoirs but they just don't want one to be built in their community in their backyard Um, and when it comes to desalination there are all sorts of green environmental concerns well you know this is just part of how net zero is going to get in way of our economy uh, progressing and our systems modernizing so there is a huge amount to address but at the moment there's a complete lack of political will to do so well
3: there is and i think people are sort of slightly squeamish about the privatization uh of 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 the utility businesses too much just because the the privatization that we have seen hasn't really been done right it's not really one or the other is it it's a kind of as you say it's a sort of quasi nationalized business which seems to exist purely and simply to make a load of money for the shareholders and not provide a very good service whether it's electricity whether it's gas you know you can't really get any competition in the water business because you either take the water from whoever supplies it or you don't have any You know, so, I mean, I would be very happy to see much more competition if it could be organised properly. But at the moment, I mean, I I just don't see a future for the water companies the way they're being run.
7: No, and I think there's such public appetite now for nationalisation. So, of course, we've had nationalisation by stealth of the railway networks. We have a nationalised healthcare system. We've got a national curriculum, uh, state school education. You know, uh, particularly after the coronavirus pandemic, I think the public appetite is for government to provide all of these services. And many people, I think, have forgotten what the situation was like before utilities were privatised. Back in the 1980s, we had bigger issues with leaks. We have bigger issues with sewage. Actually, privatisation has been beneficial to the water network. And of course, nobody wants to hear about three and a half billion uh, litres of water leaking uh, every single day. That feels like a terrible waste. But incredibly enough, that is an improvement and we're doing better than some European countries. So, you know, and it's surprising really that the Conservative government isn't going out and making these arguments, but is rather so shying away from them and allowing those who are proponents of nationalisation to shout the loudest in fact we need to come back and we need to talk about the successes of privatisation and the ways in which regulation clearly needs to be improved so that we don't have such an issue with leakage or we don't have such an issue with sewage but by and large the water companies are complying with the regulations set by Ofwat because if they don't then they are subject to very hefty fines. Yeah. They're absolutely incentivized to do so. Um, so it, it's really a question of regulation. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a wider investigation that needs to take place of who is regulating the regulators mm. in Britain, who is actually overseeing Ofgem, who's overseeing off what, who's overseeing, you know, regulators like the Advertising yeah. Standards or also- to make sure that they're not overreaching or perhaps indulging in certain woke causes and, you know, actually enforcing and introducing the right level of regulation mm. to ensure that, say, our utilities industry is functioning properly.
3: Well, you're right to say that the regulators are the problem as well, because an awful lot of the regulators, particularly Ofgem and ofwat are very much driven by net zero. And in fact, in the sort of um, terms of, of their reference uh, at Ofgem, they say, that they have uh, a duty to uh, keep the pricing fair, uh, but also to um, have a duty to get close to net zero. So, you know, the two things don't always go hand in hand because they end up allowing these companies to charge more money. We've heard from Rishi Sunak that they're going to put the green levy back on for an extra 170 quid a year for everybody. You know, and we're paying through the nose for something that we don't want.
7: That's right. Um you know, I think by and large people are supportive of the idea that we need to decarbonize. They are supportive of some sort of low carbon transition. What a lot of people are uncomfortable with is the idea that we've got this arbitrary target that we have to hit net zero emissions by 2050 and that the way to achieve that is through central planning. And I think you know, we're seeing a revolt against this. Look at the way that Londoners have responded to ULEZ. Yeah. Uh, look at how uh, villages that were going to be in, uh, involved in a pilot of hydrogen have of pushback against it. Look at the fact that the heat pumps um, rollout has been a complete fiasco. You know, electric vehicles, well, that's all very well, but they have their problems. They're mm. extremely heavy. We haven't got the charging infrastructure. Um, there are so many problems with the government trying to force this on people, particularly when forcing it on us is going to be extremely costly. Instead, what the government ought to be doing is creating the right conditions for a market discovery process. So let's let the green entrepreneurs, Let's let the innovators, um, you know, then be the ones who are going to drive us towards this, because there is public appetite for it, but it's not being channeled in the right way.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. So bring it on, Elon Musk, you know, bring your electricity to us and maybe you can start a water company while you're at it.
7: Well, exactly. You know, I don't understand why there's been such a you know, objection to Elon Musk over the last sort of twelve hours. You know, there's people are saying that it's not going to be inclusive or it's not gonna help the poorest consumers and perhaps it's part of some dastardly plot to corner the market and hold us all to ransom. Well, our energy system is in a complete mess. Prices are going up, blackouts are going to be a real possibility. If there is an exceptionally cold winter, let's not forget that we got off quite lightly last winter because it was quite mild. Why is it that people are not welcoming one of the world's greatest entrepreneurs coming in and attempting to shake up the market? Well, I think it's because we've become extremely anti-business in this country. Mm -hmm. We are in favour of high taxes. Businesses, you know, some Something that need to be squeezed and strangled and regulated and taxed rather than something that creates jobs and creates wealth and funds public services um you know it's just incredible that we now have this fanatically big state elite mm-hmm. elite who's got a pathological hatred of billionaires um and ultimately what we ought to be doing is welcoming some kind of uh, innovation competition uh, in the electricity market um and, you know let's let's see where it goes and of course if it works for elon musk then other players will come into this industry and they'll try to innovate and this is extraordinary really that this is the sort of thing that the current government is trying to shut down rather than encourage
3: yeah absolutely right final word just on the bbc salaries came out yesterday rather unfortunate timing for tim davy uh, had to spend most of the day defending uh, the other story aside from uh, the story about the salaries but actually the salaries to me are still rather kind of um disgracefully high you know considering what we're going through considering that it's public money that people are paying they're asking for an increase in the license fee you were talking there about you know the the nonsensical nature of our public uh, sort of um industries and our public utilities, if you like. I mean, the BBC is kind of in the same bracket, isn't it? I mean, they're paying ludicrous amounts of money to to people that mostly no one's ever heard of.
7: That's right. Um, Absolutely massive salary increases from a corporation that for a long time has been pleading poverty. They've been saying that the licence fee has been held down in real terms, that it it needs to go up in line with uh, inflation. And yet, here they are able somehow to award massive pay increases to some of their already most highly paid staff. You know, and and this is coming at a time when commercial um, broadcasters, some of them have been struggling as a result of Mm. falling advertising revenue. Um, And essentially what we have and for a long time have had is this public sector um, empire that's funded by a hypothecated tax and is run without any real regard for value for money. Um, you know, th- this is coming off, of course, the back of former chair Richard Sharp complaining that the licence fee is regressive and that the wealthy should pay more. Well, shouldn't we be asking if people want to pay it at all? Yeah, now, Everyone really. uh, who's in possession of television and watches uh, either live TV or BBC programming is forced to pay the licence fee or they will be issued with uh, a penalty and you know could find themselves in a magistrate's um court well this is you know it's so um antiquated it's so outdated you know when the license fee was introduced we lived in a world of very limited spectrum we had one television channel and in the three quarters of a century since technology has come on leaps and bounds we've got huge range of television channels, streaming services, and the license fee is completely outdated and I'm afraid it's just going to get worse because look at how 18 to 34 year olds are now consuming news and yeah. um, look at their viewing habits. They watch about seven times more Netflix and YouTube as BBC One content. So, you know, this is something that absolutely needs to be addressed. But of course, as with so many public sector institutions, there isn't enough accountability. Um, there's, I think, You know, insufficient transparency. You have a lot of people working now who have their own uh, agendas. Often, you know, while it may claim to be uh, impartial and claim to be neutral, this has been proven to to not be the case in some areas of its programming. And. It, the whole thing just needs to a complete change in its funding model in order that it can be accountable to those who avail themselves of its services.
3: Yeah, absolutely right. Great to see you, Annabelle. Thank you very much indeed, Annabelle Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. Andrew in Wakefield says, Mike, are the salary figures including employers' pension contributions, which in the public sector is much higher than in the private sector? Well, I think that's interesting uh, because you may well uh, have to add those in uh, to get an even bigger salary number uh, for some of these people. but. Gary Lineker at number one uh, with 1.35 uh, million a year um, for a kind of what you might effectively say is a bit of a part time job, isn't it? 0344 is the number. Don't forget to subscribe to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham podcast so you never miss a moment from the show. Subscribe and download now from wherever you get your podcast, The podcast, I'm sure, will be available uh, very shortly thereafter. Uh, Coming up next, Peter Cardwell's going to be here to tell us what was great and what not so great about Prime Minister's questions.
6: Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
3: If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app.